I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and our cases this week. Did a firefighter really take his own life, as his wife says? If you listen to the 911 call, and we will play it for you, she says that he took his own life after the two of them had a fight. Police found that suspicious. So after some digging, now police in North Carolina say that the grieving widow is the one who killed the firefighter and they have charged her with murder. But first, the horrific murder of a young mother in Pennsylvania is witnessed by her two young children, say police. The oldest one, just four years old. And according to police, she begged the killer to stop. She even bit the man in an attempt to save her mother. Prosecutors say that this tiny little witness was not only brave, but her version of events is supported by the forensic evidence in the murder of her mother. It's an incredible story. We are recording this on July 6th of 2022. Our guest today is Sean Farrow, a criminal defense attorney based in New York. He is with the law firm of Hamilton Clark LLP. And if that sounds familiar to all of you, that's because very frequently on this program, we have Philip Hamilton and Lance Clark, the partners on this program. So Sean, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and excited to jump into these cases. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. I think at some point we're probably going to have the whole law firm and then I'm going to want the paralegals. And I know you've got some stellar interns this summer. Maybe we Mm -hmm. could do like a whole a case where everyone gets involved and does commentary. That'd be kind of fun. I would love that. Sounds like Uh a great idea. All right. All right. We're going to put that on the books. All right, Sean, um, we're going to get to our first case here, and it's out of Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where two daughters have witnessed the horrific murder of their mother. The older one, just four years old at the time, she tried to stop it, according to police. And it is the woman's live-in boyfriend who has been charged with the murder. Now, the victim here is 31-year-old Samantha Rementer, uh, who was found bludgeoned and strangled to death in her condo, according to Northampton Township Police. This happened on June 8th. The two daughters, Sean, four and one years old, one. They were in the house. The littlest one was strapped into her high chair in the dining room at the time. You know, I I can't even imagine. We know what some of the four-year-old has witnessed because she's been able to share it with police, but... I mean, I don't know how you undo this damage. 
I, I don't think that you can undo this damage. I think it's going to be a long recovery for the two of them. And my heart goes out to them because you can't unring that bell. You can't unwitness what you just saw. And what really stuck out was two things. One, the one-year-old still stuck in the high chair, like completely powerless to move, to do anything, and just stuck watching this and hearing this tragedy. But then also the four-year-old who answers the door for police covered in blood. Like, just words can't really describe what they experience. And just, it's a horrific scene of epic proportions for them. It really is. It's it's just incredible. And as we get into the details in just a, a minute or two, you will be overwhelmed by the scene that the police found themselves in. Because I know you always expect, you know, you get a call, you know, you, something's going on. But the level of this crime scene of the violence uh, is really quite overwhelming. And it's very interesting how it was the tiniest of the witnesses and truly victims, because they were victimized by this horrific, violent act, um, how they were able to help police. It's it's just incredible. So police say that Thaddeus, 35-year-old Thaddeus McGrath, who would have been the live-in boyfriend, has now been charged with one count of first-degree murder and one count of third-degree murder. Police say that Thaddeus was vicious. They say that he hit Samantha with a stepladder and then he strangled her with the cord of a lamp. In fact, police say when they got into the condo that the uh, cord was still wrapped around her neck, still attached to the lamp. Yeah. Like the, the, the very notion that he went to these lengths, it's not just a minor tussle that he got into or being upset just a little bit, he really carried this on to a, a great dis- degree that I can't even imagine. I mean, like you said, the first he's going to hit her with the ladder. Sure, that does incredible damage, but then to take it a step further, and if you see from the report, he strangled her until she turned purple so that she he knew she was dead. Like, that is just absolutely egregious behavior and incredibly violent behavior there. And to think that, again, these girls four and one years old are hearing all this take place and there's nothing they can do. And not only did he lose his self-control, which we see a lot in murder scenes where he's lost his self-control, but the four-year-old is actually trying to rein him in. She's telling him to stop and she's also biting him to stop. And the fact that what this child did and said did not jar him into reality to say, hold on a second, what am I doing? I need to stop gives you an idea of where he was in his head, which is a really scary place. It shows that he was in a complete state of rage and there was nothing that was going to deter him until he finished this job. So, you know, as incredible as the details of this case are, I do believe that it's the next part that to me, um, honestly, is, is so disturbing about what police found and how quickly they reacted. So on June 8th, at approximately five o'clock in the afternoon, a few minutes after five, police were called out to do a welfare check, not for the mother, not for Samantha. Thaddeus's own mother called police and said, my son is suicidal. He has threatened to kill himself. You need to get there. So police are on their way to this home to try and figure out what's happening with Thaddeus and try to stop him from injuring himself. Now, according to the criminal complaint, the police get to the door. They're knocking. The door isn't opened for them, but police say that they can hear 
people inside. They can hear some kind of a wrestling noise. So um, this is when it gets interesting. They finally get in to the house. And the first thing that they see is what you described. A bloody four-year-old. A four-year-old child covered in blood. They quickly find out that she doesn't appear to be injured. And then the next thing that they find in the dining room area is the little one-year-old girl in her high chair. This to me, as I was reading the complaint, was so stunning. You know, I guess I, as a parent, I would just grab the child out of the high chair and run. The police officer took the high chair with the baby in the chair and ran out with it. And I thought to myself, the presence of mind, how brilliant a move is this? Think about it. You're, you know that not only do you have to save a one-year-old baby, but you need to be able to safely contain the baby. Like if you take the baby out of the high chair, I was thinking to myself, my God, these police officers are so smart. Then someone has to hold the baby because you can't like leave a one-year-old because they're mobile enough to harm themselves. Maybe the four-year-old you might be able to contain and tell her to sit down, but you can't with the one-year-old. And I thought, what presence of mind to literally scoop up the baby and the high chair and take them both outside. I thought that was a brilliant moment that the police officer exhibited in, in such a high intensity, high, high pace environment, such as that the presence of mind, like you said, to be able to take the high chair out, sit the baby down so they can go back and do their job. I mean, that is, that is beautiful police work in, in its essence right there. It really is life-saving, you yeah. know, nothing but the utmost of respect for that tiny, tiny victim, making sure that tiny victim is safe, that this older sister is safe. So now we have the children outside of the house and the police have to go back in because they're not done yet. So the next thing, according to the criminal complaint, as it's described, they hear moaning coming from one of the bedrooms. And that is where they find Thaddeus. Yeah. Now, according to police, Thaddeus shot himself in the face, was missing some teeth, um, had seriously injured himself, but had not killed himself. So they call paramedics and they get Thaddeus to the hospital and he has survived. What's also interesting is let's not forget the four-year-old. The four-year-old is verbal at this time. So she actually tells police what happened, which is shocking to me while all of this is going on. I mean, the chaos, right? She says to the police, quote, and she refers to him as daddy and Thaddeus is not her father. Daddy killed mommy because she was annoying him. And then daddy shot himself accidentally. Mm. Yeah. That's pretty accurate. Spot on. And, and, and usually, you know, Young victims aren't always the best or the most accurate storytellers, but she just very concisely, very plainly, this is what happened. And, and she's exactly right. And unfortunately, she's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just incredible. And then she also shared that she tried to get him to stop. She said to him, please stop, please stop. You're killing my mom. So if anyone out there has any question at all that maybe the four-year-old doesn't know what she saw, she absolutely knows what she saw. She saw the murder of her mother. It's such a shame that someone so young had to witness all of this. And this is going to stick with her probably the rest of her life. Yeah. 
It's, Absolutely it's, horrendous. And then we'll find out how much more tragedy these poor children have suffered. I, I, to give you context of the family here, these little girls lost their biological father a year earlier. He was in his early 30s. He died of a heart attack. So that means the little one would have been about three when her dad died and the other one, you know, a newborn. So think about that. A year ago, they lose their father and a year later, they lose their mother. They have been orphaned, orphaned. Uh, They are now in the care of family and they are as safe as they can be uh, with grandparents, but... This is, you know, as this case progresses, it just, it's, it's just horrific. Well, let's get back to the crime scene, which is equally disturbing. So in one of the children's bedrooms, police find Samantha. She is clearly passed by now. Police say that her face was bashed in with the stepladder and that she had been strangled with that cord from the lamp. <laughs> Amazingly, the lamp and the cord still attached there in the bedroom. Here's what I am very, very curious about, and I'd like your opinion on, because we talk about this a lot about confessions and whether they can be used. And then sometimes defendants have a change of heart and a change of strategy. And it's always like, what can be used where? So Thaddeus's father, John McGrath, says that his son called him and confessed that the son, Thaddeus, said to his dad, I killed Samantha and I strangled her. Don't forget it was his mother who calls police and says the man is suicidal. So what do you do with that in a criminal case like that? Is the is is that testimony, that original testimony given to police that he, my son confessed, is that something that can be used against him? I'm leaning towards that it might be admissible. And the reason why I say it might be admissible is because it was voluntary. It was of his own volition. He knew what he was doing. He could appreciate it in that moment. Um, and he wasn't he wasn't in such a state or such a mind state that he could not appreciate the words coming out of his mouth. And so I think that under Pennsylvania law, a confession is going to be admissible as long as it's voluntary. And I think that the judges are going to have to evaluate that given the circumstances that are presented. But it's one that I think leans towards it being admissible for the fact that, again, he chose to make the phone call. He volunteered this. He wasn't being pressured. There's no duress coming from police. Police aren't even present at this moment. So this is a completely voluntarily act. And this is completely his own voluntary confession. And so that's kind of the way I'm leading on this one. It's interesting because, you know, um, then police finally do interview Thaddeus. Remember, he's taken to the hospital because he's just tried to kill himself. So it took a few days before police could interrogate him. And Thaddeus himself, according to police, has confessed. He said that Samantha made him mad. Remember what the little girl said? She was spot on. Something that Samantha did or said upset him so much that he had to grab a stepladder and hit her in the face, and then strangle her. So it's like, it escalated. It never de-escalated. So, and he confirmed, Thaddeus confirmed that the oldest girl, the four-year-old, and we're not naming the children because they're victims of crime here, um, that the oldest girl did try and stop him. And he remembers that clearly. And 
but he continued to strangle the mother. So when you have a confession like this, presumably he's been read his rights and whether he chose to have an attorney there present or not, when you start to have detail like this that's all matching and knowing that in trial things change and people change their stories, what's the strength of the prosecutor's case at this point? As a defense attorney, I think the prosecution has a really strong case because we have not just one, but two confessions on top of what is already being said by the four-year-old. And how do you come back and combat these two confessions? How can we sit there and say that it's an involuntary confession? There's no circumstances that, at least to me, what I'm seeing or hearing, that point to this being an involuntary confession or being a coerced confession, as many people would hear. So two voluntary confessions that are in great detail about what took place. You know, I'm at, I'm at a loss of words from a defensive perspective because I'm just like, what are we going to say to this? How do we sit there and counter these confessions? I, I don't see that we have much of anything. So the prosecutor, I think, is in a really good position to use these against the defense and kind of, you know, push us into a corner a little bit. And what about the four-year-old who's now turned five? It's so sad. She had a birthday after her mother was murdered. Very, very sad fifth birthday when you think about it. All her birthdays are going to be very sad. Um, how do you, what What can you do with what a four-year-old tells you? I, I've seen many, many cases where I've always said, the children know, the children saw, the children heard. You know, they can always give context. Many times they're older, though. They'll be like eight or ten years old. With a four-year-old, uh, is any of that, do you think, going to be admissible if this goes to trial? They, they wouldn't put her on the stand, would they? I mean, you're always hesitant to put someone so young on the stand. Of course you can. Um, you you, you want to hesitate because, again, you don't want to re-traumatize the four-year-old. I think in a position like this, you probably, if you can avoid putting her on the stand and having her to relive all that, you want to do that. You want to try to avoid at all costs. I guess in the absolute necessity, if somehow the, the case went awry, you needed her testimony, sure, you could put her on the stand. And then what do you say in defense? Because you want to be careful. You don't want to attack her, right? Because she's four years old. She's a victim herself, and that's not going to look good to us. And it's really hard to counter what she's saying if it's just plain as day, right? Mm -hmm. This is what daddy did to mommy, and it's kind of just left it at that. So I think in this case, I'm not sure that you even question her. I'm not even sure you cross-examine her. Right. I think you kind of just have to leave it as is because it's just it's too radioactive to use, uh, for lack of a better word. It is just it's, it's not going to help us any as defense. No, no. And of course, we're waiting on all the forensics because the forensics will tell you so much. The latter will have a lot of DNA and maybe parts of her that it should not have. And, you know, the cord itself will also have DNA and the scene and, and everything, everything plus the confessions and then the little girl's immediate account. So it will all tell a story and it will all fall into place. But I'm always curious as to what you do with this because confessions initially, it's kind of like the 911 calls. They can be very revealing, even when the person is completely lying, which yeah. is what we're going to see in the next case, that yep. these early moments uh, can reveal so much, whether the story is told in a truthful way or in a way to cover up. 
So um, it, it, I find this just, this to me is like one of the saddest, saddest cases. I, I just, you know, especially since their daddy died a year ago, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's one trauma after another, another for these girls. So this of course is not the beginning of Thaddeus's legal issues, which I also find very concerning and troubling. Um, According to published reports, he faces charges of child pornography, possession of child porn in Massachusetts after a May 2021, so that would have been about a year ago, an arrest a year ago. Thaddeus um, was under investigation because police officers were tipped off by an online cloud service provider. Allegedly, he was uploading images of children that were exposing sexual abuse of these children. And this account was linked to Thaddeus. It is unclear to any of us right now whether Samantha, the mother of these two girls, had any idea that Thaddeus was facing these charges and I mean, the the immediate question for me is, two little girls in this house where he is living, were these two little girls victimized? I, I think that's, if that's not on the first thing on everybody's mind, it should be close to the first thing. That's one of the first things I thought of. And it's like, these two little girls, they got traumatized in this moment, but have they been traumatized for the last, you know, one year for one kid and last four years for the other child? I think it's a very fair question. And now, you know, the investigation, I think, really begins. It goes beyond just what happened between Thaddeus and this young woman. I think now you have to look into possible child abuse and maybe more than that. And so now we have to take a deep dive into who this guy really is. And and he might be more of a monster than we think he is. Yeah. And he's already reached that threshold for me. So I don't know how much higher on the monster level this guy can go. Again, he is accused. He is accused, presumed innocent as he goes through the justice system. Uh, But based on the criminal complaint and the details there, the police details of the scene, it certainly is looking like he's the starring role of monster here in in this family unit. Now, Samantha's father, so this would be the grandfather of the children, who, of course, is helping to raise the girls right now. She's, he is calling the four-year-old, who's now five, a rock star for trying to save her mother. And, and I understand what that shows of this little girl, what her humanity in such a tiny little person was able to accomplish but it's still so very sad. It's It breaks my heart to even think of her reaching for this man and biting him in an attempt with the tiniest of little teeth trying to harm this man to stop him from hurting her mom. Yeah, I, I you know, I, my hat went off to, to the grandfather in this moment because he really took what is and what we've said time and time again already a really horrific, you know, traumatic event. And he tried to put any positive spin on it that he could and trying to at least give her that, that moment that she tried. And, and that's, I think, all you can do in that moment. And I don't think there's any other words you can put there. Um, but at least he tried to give her some positivity, some uplifting by saying you tried to stop him. 
So yeah. I, my hats went off to, to grandfather for trying to bring some light or some positivity out of this dark time. Mm-hmm. Thaddeus McGrath is charged with first and third degree murder, endangering the welfare of a child, recklessly endangering another person, and possession of an instrument in crime. His hearing is scheduled for July 7th of this week. So when this uh, podcast drops, he will have already had his appearance in court. We will be watching this case closely. Our next case is out of North Carolina, where the wife of a firefighter called 911 to report her husband's suicide. But police now say it was really murder. 37-year-old Heather Allman is charged with first-degree murder. She is accused of killing her husband, MJ, who is also 37 years old. The killing happened on June 25th in Randolph County, North Carolina. MJ had been a volunteer firefighter for 20 years with the Seagrove Fire Department. Plus, he also worked as a firefighter in the city of Asheboro. Man dedicated as a first responder, whether he's paid or volunteer, this is the kind of man who dedicated his life to helping others. I want to be really clear about this. No victim, you know, should ever lose his or her life. But it's just, it hurts when it's a mom of two, like we just heard. It hurts when it's a first responder. You know, someone who is kind and gives of themselves. So we are going to play the 911 tape. Because I think you all need to hear for yourselves what it is that his wife said happened and then what now police say happened. So we're going to play it now. Uh, This was provided by TV station ABC 45. My husband has shot himself. What road, ma'am? Okay, is he he breathing? He's got a pulse, but I mean, he's not responsive whatsoever. He needs help. We were just fussing, having an argument, and he, he told me he couldn't do it anymore. So if we're listening to the 911 call, Sean, it sounds like that version of events sounds like they had an argument, he couldn't take it, and he killed himself. That's what it sounds like. And, you know, you want to take, she's making a 911 call, right? So you want to take her at face value, and she's the eyewitness, so... She's the first person you're going to go to. It does seem a little bit odd, though. And it, and it you know, stuck up an antenna for me because they got into an argument. So he, in that moment, decided to shoot himself. I, anything's possible. I understand that. But that one struck me as odd. In my years of practicing and hearing about suicides and being part of, you know, attempted suicide cases and all that, I don't think I've seen one in which a person is like, I'm going to kill myself in front of, especially a loved one. That just seemed a little odd for me. So right off the bat, my antenna stuck up. But of course, I want to give her benefit of doubt because it's such a serious situation. You don't think in the first few seconds that she's going to tell any type of lie. So you take it face value, just like, okay, we got a real situation here. I always think in these cases where police are alleging that the person calling 911 and telling the story is actually telling a story, a lie, which is what police claim here. It's always interesting I always think that there are always little bits and pieces, maybe of truth. Maybe they were arguing. That's very possible, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And it is possible that someone brought out a gun because clearly someone is dead. Um, But 
Is it her version of events? What we don't know yet, because the case is so early on in its investigation, we haven't been given a timeline yet. We don't know approximate time of death and then when the call was made. We don't know if there's a lag time in there. We have no idea if the scene was tampered with. We have no idea. We've not been told yet. And, you know, every police department is different. Some give you all the information, like in the case we just heard, where they're giving you every detail of where the bodies are and, and describes everything and where the children are. In this case, we don't have the details of where the gun was found in position, you know, in relation and position to the body. We don't even know details of where he was shot. There's a lot here that has not been made public. But the fact that police went from suicide to murder in just something like four days tells you a lot. I think there's no question about it. They were able to piece that together rather quickly. And it makes me, again, question her story. So as I'm sitting here looking at it, to go from she's a potential eyewitness and victim, and this is a tragedy for her, to all of a sudden she's the main suspect within a matter of days, it tells me that the evidence is is glaring for the police and really points to her. Now, police do say that when they arrived on the scene, MJ was still alive, clinging to life. So, and there's no way I think that we can know for sure whether he had just been shot 20 minutes earlier, an hour earlier, three hours earlier. It's really unclear. You know, I don't think we're going to go into days, but I think we still don't know when was he shot and when she called. We don't know what that gap is like, but he was clinging to life when the ambulance arrived. He was rushed to a local hospital, but MJ did not survive. So initially, police dealt with this as a suicide for a few reasons, not only just the wife's call. What's interesting is that there was another 911 call from a neighbor because the neighbor heard all this commotion and MJ has an 11-year-old son. And he was apparently, what we don't know is, was he home at the time of the shooting or did he hear something? It's so unclear because all we know, and we can tell from the second 911 call, because we can hear the little boy crying, screaming that his dad has just killed himself. So the neighbor, you know, she wants to know how she can help what's going on. She calls 911 because she's heard the little boy screaming. And the neighbor tells 911 that, um, quote, I came outside and I saw his son just screaming. I asked him what was wrong and he told me that his dad had shot himself. So now you have a second call to 911 from a party that is not involved in any of this. Again, reinforcing the suicide version of events. So I I can certainly see why they would have looked at it. But my guess is the minute you walk into one of these scenes, you have a pretty good gut reaction as a police officer, whether the gunshot was self-inflicted or made to look or made to look like that. Yeah, I think there's no question. If you got detectives that have been on the job for years and they're trained to look for these type of clues, they're going to know pretty quickly uh, whether this was self-inflicted or whether or not this was a homicide. And it just goes to show you that, you know, his wife was already starting to lie the moment she called, the moment she told the son, she was already planning this out in her head. And the fact that it's not 
maybe the best laid out plan because we've seen on this podcast, you know, months of planning and preparation for the execution of a murder. Whereas this one, I don't know if this one was perhaps more heat of the moment and then, oh boy, I better come up with a good version of events here. I don't know. We don't know that yet. Yeah, I think one of the things that I I was kind of thinking about was that gun you talked about. Where did the gun come from? Did she have it on him, on herself? Did he have it on him? Did he? Did she take it off? I just want to know where the gun came from and and who had possession of the gun uh, in the moments leading up to the shooting. Because I think that can tell us a great deal, kind of whether this was planned out well in advance or whether this was more of a heat of the moment type of thing. Well, she has been arrested. Heather has been arrested. She was arrested four days after the killing of MJ. And she's being held in the Randolph County Jail without bail. And if found guilty, she could face the death penalty in North Carolina. And, you know, a little bit more here on the victim and just how everything kind of unfolded at the same time. So while Heather is making one of her first appearances in court on, um, I believe it was July 1st. Yeah, his funeral. Yeah, his funeral is occurring at the same time. And firefighters in the area lined up their trucks, as we see oftentimes when um, a fallen colleague is honored and as part of the funeral procession, firefighters all came out to line the streets for for his ultimate um, funeral and burial. While she's in court, so you can imagine, this isn't a really big town. There's a lot going on here. Wife, wife is in court. Uh, husband's body is being driven through the city with firefighters on either side. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's been a very hard time for the first responders in that community. I, I can only imagine. I know how tight-knit you know, our first responders are, whether it be police, ambulance, firefighters. And so for a tragedy to strike, especially a small town, you know, once again, my heart goes out to them. I have a couple of buddies that are firefighters here in New York. And again, I know how tight they are. So, you know, this is something that's going to stick with a lot of them for quite some time and stick with this town. And, and, and it's, you know, tragic to see this, but I'm always proud and impressed and just in awe of just how they all come together and show the love they have for a fallen comrade. I think it's very beautiful in spite of the fact that they're facing such tragedy here. Yeah, I know. And I don't know what happens to MJ's son, the 11-year-old boy. Uh, What is unclear from any of the reports is whether Heather is his biological mother. Um, Some of you may be wondering that question. We can't answer it for you right now. It's not clear. Also, I think because so much of this happened over a holiday weekend and then his funeral was so quick, there's a lot going on. and, And police have just, again, not shared as many details as sometimes some other departments do. Uh, Heather is due back in court on August 2nd. And just one little thing, you know, I always talk about, you know, we try our best to honor the the survivors and the victims here. And, you know, clearly MJ was a kind man in the sense that he was a first responder and he gave of himself, even volunteered when he, in addition to working as a firefighter. But one of the neighbors said about him that they had chickens and he was always delivering fresh eggs to the neighbors. Like, that's the kind of neighbor I want. So I want to leave this instead of hanging on the the horror of what's happened. I want to leave it on the nice man who shares fresh chickens with his neighbors. Yeah, I mean, he really seemed like a lovable person and a genuinely great human being who was always 
going the extra mile for everybody. That's the kind of neighbor we all want. That's the kind of people I hope we all strive to be like. And it's just, like I said, it's a very sad, tragic, but you know, at the very least, there's so many positive memories that are coming to light from all the people in the town that knew him and just had an interaction. So uh, at least with his life, we can celebrate it in a sense that it's just like he was an amazing human being. Yeah. Yeah. Let's leave that on a slightly higher note today. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on social media. Our producer, Will Updike, is here now. Okay, what's everybody talking about, Will? Hey, Anna. Hey, Sean. So this week we have a case coming out of Minnesota. Now, a man and a woman were arrested after 10 pounds of meth were allegedly delivered to the wrong address. Um, So how this all came together is in late June, investigators learned that the meth was mailed to an Elk River. This is Minnesota, remember, home. And how they found this was a concerned resident brought them the box that had been mailed incorrectly. So police officers open the box. They find drugs inside. It's later determined to be to be meth. And then now, so officers try to put things together, you know, so they they immediately do a search on the recipient who was originally supposed to receive this package. It led them to 28-year-old Jessica Garrity. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, But she, the, the kicker on this is she had been contacting her building management for this package, saying she was missing this package this whole time. So now authorities, you know, they have who the recipient is. They're trying to put this all together. Uh, to catch her in the act, they end up replacing the meth that was in the box with 10 pounds of salt and they added a gps tracker and an alarm system to the box to repackage it and then they give this to jessica's building management and have the uh, building management give it to her now so investigators reportedly witnessed jessica picking up the package and the box was later given to another party 24 year old ricardo uh, Uruguay. Now, Ricardo was he was arrested. Now, Jessica tries to cover her tracks now that she's been caught in the act. So she tells officers that Ricardo was in between homes at the time and he had just asked her to to grab a package for him. She was you know, just kind of being his P.O. box. Um, and the two had a met, like allegedly met on a dating site around a month prior to all this going down. So they search Jessica's house. They find marijuana there. So she is also arrested. And the subject and both suspects were booked into the Shelbourne County Jail. Uh, now, they've both been charged with first degree possession of a controlled substance, and they are scheduled to appear in court uh, early this month. But people had a lot to say about this one. Uh, K.N. said the wrong house. I would say the same thing, which would be a valid excuse if you hadn't contacted building management. I think uh, there's a lesson to be learned there. Maybe right. if you're waiting on an illicit, su- like uh, a- an illicit package, don't go adding your name to it that you're looking for it. Uh, Darian Jackson wanted to know, wonder what kind of salt was used? I'm I, I, I'm curious if they just went with classic Morton's. I don't know if maybe you do a coarser salt. I say uh, Epsom salt. That's me. Epsom salt. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, I think you can't go with pink Himalayan or, or I, I don't know that people would buy it. Uh, <laughs> Danny A says, well, they messed up. 
Uh, yeah, mm. not a not a good look. Not a good look. John Anderson uh, was wondering about if in this instance, you know, salt was the drug. He wants to know what was it cut with butter? I'm not sure exactly what you would stomp on salt with if you're trying to maximize your 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 products there. Uh, but it is valid. Uh, Donia N said I'd be pretty salty if I were them, which you, you got to think that both of these people were just face palming themselves in holding because what a way, what a way to get caught. Uh, but that is what everybody had to say on social media about this one. As always, if you want a chance to get your comment featured on the show, go ahead, leave those over on our YouTube community page. You can also leave your comments on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. That, you know, I, it, it's one thing if you're waiting for a delivery from right Macy's or The Gap and it hasn't shown up. That's one thing. And of course, you're like, where's my package? Where's my package? But this, yeah, definitely did not help. But on the issue of like traveling with salt, I recently went to Indiana on on, a, on an assignment on a crime story, and I had hurt my back. So I had like a Ziploc bag of a little bit of Epsom salt that I put in my bag. And I kept thinking to myself, oh my God, if I get pulled over by TSA, but I'm like, but it's just salt. Even if they pull me over, I don't they can inspect it like down to every grain. It is. But I did think about that. I'm like, oh, my God, am I going to get pulled over because I have Epsom salt in my suitcase? Would not be a good look. But uh, no, a crime I, I, reporter I pulled over at LAX for traveling with salts because her back hurts. Yes. <laughs> oh, well. Oh, Will. <laughs> we'll see you next week, Will. All righty. Sounds good. See you. Well, Sean, it has been such a pleasure having you on the program. I hope that you come back and join us. I would love to. Thank you for having me so much. Uh, this is my first podcast. So thank you. Yay. We love that. We love that. Um, you know, before we started recording, you were sharing with us that you're headed over to the legendary Rikers Island today yes. to meet with, I guess, a, a client. I know we can't ask you anything about that, but... As a crime reporter or anyone who's like obsessed with crime, Rikers Island is like, you know, this institution that we've all heard about. What is it? What is it like? It is one of the most just demoralizing places to be, right? Like it is just run down. It's not taken care of. It looks very unkempt. Um, and it just, once you go in there, most of the energy from people, whether it be the inmates or the COs, is just all negativity. And you get the sense that a lot of people are just on the edge. And it's just that the slightest thing, the proverbial shawl will break the camel's back. Like it, anything can just set anything off. And it's just, it's, man, the best way to describe it, it's just, it's a complete dump, really. And I know yeah. they try not to exaggerate that because I want to, be you know be able to paint an honest picture but it's like one of those places you just don't want to go you don't want to spend any time there and so it leaves people regardless of how long they're there it leaves them more broken once they come out because there's nothing there but just you know stress anxiety and exacerbation whatever issues you already had coming in and, you know, I'm I, talking about having recently seen uh, a TV series based on a, a crime and an inmate that was kept there. And one of the, the themes of this is about um, how you have to take a bus there. Like, yes. you know, other prisons, because I've been to other prisons, you know, you generally you go there, you park. But in these bigger cities, you can't just just even getting there isn't easy. 
Yeah, for me, I'm going to have to take uh, two different subways. And then once I get off to the subway in Queens, then I got to take a bus. Uh, and that bus will then take me onto the island itself. Wow. And so it's, it's about an hour, about an hour and change to get to Rikers. And it uh, is an island. It is an actual island off like, you know, a couple hundred feet away from LaGuardia Airport, but it is an actual island with barbed wire all the way around. It's mini Alcatraz, if you will, not so far wow. off from mainland, but yeah, you're on an island and it's not always easy for people who don't have access to cars to get to the island. And that bus, it comes every once in a blue moon. Wow. Just amazing. Just thank you just for giving us a little bit of insight into that because, you know, it's all part of the criminal justice system. It's all these different moving parts about how attorneys get to talk to their clients and where they're held and the different facilities and God, and that's just like your every day. So, wow, that's amazing. Sean, where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media or just get in touch with you? If they want to find me on social media, I finally have a Twitter page so they can find me on the laws of rugby because I am a rugby player. Get and, out! <laughs> uh, so the laws of rugby for Twitter and for Instagram, you can find me on rugby attorney 11. So no me. way. I love that. I'm going to follow you. <laughs> I'm going to follow you. Uh, I'm Anna G News, Anna with one N. Sometimes I talk about crime. Sometimes, you know, I talk about chihuahuas or what I ate that day. You know, it just, it is what it is. So you can find this podcast and all of our podcasts wherever you get your podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and also sign up to receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs>